Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the WGA strike as well as the SAG-AFTRA strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. Also, please check out SAGAFTRA.org for additional resources. Making movies is hard, but casting for your movie doesn't have to be. With Casting Calls America, you can post your open roles for free in over 30 local markets nationwide. And when you post your roles, they will automatically post to IMDb Pro to get even more eyes on your project. All actor submissions are delivered to your user-friendly dashboard, making your casting process easy. You can even search our actor databases and invite actors you're interested in to audition to your project. Actors pay a small monthly fee and have all open roles delivered to their inbox each day. Get your project started today. It's casting made easy at castingcallsamerica.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome, this is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manishal. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making others, including a horror comedy called Best Friends Forever. I do sales and distribution consulting, and I used to work at Sundance. This week, we welcome writer Melissa Rundle on the show to talk about working her way up to the writer's room, how the Kung Fu writer's room worked, and getting hired to write rom-coms based on much darker writing samples. After that, we play another round of Y'all the Expert. But first, Liz, how are you doing today? I'm good. Sean and I, my I'm saying this a lot, my person, partner, <laughs> husband thing. We went to go get lunch today and unbeknownst to us, we ended up at a place called Coyote Cafe where they have a salad that makes you give birth. And oh. I sat underneath a sign that said salad babies. <laughs> and it's all these people who signed it with the name of their child. And the Colin and the name for our second child were like right next to each other. Wow. I did not order the salad, though. I don't want to give birth. But it was such a weird thing that there's this like this mythical place that we ended up. And then like all these pregnant women just kept on coming in and ordering the salad. And I really? just sat there with my veggie pizza being like, no, thank you. No, thank you, ma'am. That is so funny. So you were one of multiple pregnant women in this restaurant <laughs> and they were ordering the salad and you weren't. That is so funny. It's called the oh, salad and it's supposed to. Oh. It's like a balsamic vinaigrette dressing that makes you give birth. I have no idea. It's super wow. weird. Wow. Yeah. That so if you guys want to head down and you're looking for a boost, head to Coyote Cafe. Yeah. Good idea. I wanted to ask you about your, so you haven't picketed yet. Your picketing's tomorrow. That's when it's happening. Picketing at Disney tomorrow and that's July 20th. So I don't, this is not going to air for a while. So I'll have picketed by then. Yeah, yeah, no, Yeah, I'm just curious because like I was seeing your Twitter and you're talking about like, oh, who's, can someone put me in touch with a strike captain? Can someone this, that, or, you know, why did you want to get in touch with a strike captain? That was for the donut order because I have a friend who's like, I'll give you money for donuts. And I'm like, well, I can't just bring donuts. They're not going to trust me as like, so like some late, I mean, I know that I have like pregnancy privilege and no one's going to think I'm poisoning donuts if I'm bringing them with my massive bump. But still, it's like you wouldn't just accept food from a stranger. So I had to get in touch with like the higher ups at, mm. the, at the at the Disney Strike Captain Central. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. I was also reading on uh, Facebook people reacting to the Mark Ruffalo thing that we talked about a couple weeks ago yeah, or whatever it was. They were like, yeah, Mark, be my movie. <laughs> and, and then like 
then the, a bunch of actors had this really funny reaction. They were like, yeah, well, uh, if only like, like we were so lucky to be in the situation where Mark is where like, we can like, you know, take our, a lower pay cut and be in these movies. But like, we have to work for these jobs for every little thing that we have. And you know, these big actors are going to come in and take all the indie roles away from us. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> that's not okay. Gonna happen. I mean, interesting. That's- that's true. Like they do have to work for every dollar and it, they, they get overshadowed by name talent. But Mark Ruffalo is not going to take your place. Don't you worry. Like, yeah, there's only one Mark <laughs> Ruffalo. No. And like the other thing that was funny was like someone talking about like, oh, yeah, well, but the indie features who go non-union like that's my bread and butter. Like I'm a I'm not in SAG and I do these not these low budget indies that use non-union actors but like if these SAG actors are going to come and like want to do this stuff for super low budget like I'm going to get priced out because if you could get Mark Ruffalo in your indie movie you would never do non-union anymore and I'm like these are all things that are insane because like if (laughs) if you're going to do a non-union movie you can't afford to get someone like Mark Ruffalo in your movie anyways and Mark Ruffalo is not going to be working for the kind of money that like you know that we have is like micro budget filmmakers like even if he was to do indies like he would be like no i'm not gonna do that (laughs) indie i meant like a four million dollar indie not like a two hundred thousand dollar indie or whatever well and then people (laughs) will point to the outliers right because there was all that buzz about scarlett johansson and her rate on asteroid city and i think it was four thousand dollars a week and they talk about that and it's like well i mean it's wes anderson you know what I mean? For like, Wes Anderson. For Wes Anderson. Yeah. And also $4,000 a week is more than most indie films can afford. Yeah, but you're right. It's like these people are weighing in with these like hypothetical problems. They're like, oh no, what about me? What about me? And it's like, no, no, no. You're still going to be fucked over as an indie filmmaker. Don't you worry. Yeah. Like in, yeah. in, not in the ways that you think Mark Ruffalo is going to fuck you over, but in the same ways you've been fucked over before. Like it's not really going to yeah. change things for us, I don't think. And he's not going to be stealing the lead roles in no. all, you know, or him or other actors like him aren't going to come in and be in the lead roles in movies like the, the micro budget filmmakers are making. No, but that's that just not going to happen. Still make our content, but like, yeah, worry less, worry less. Yeah. Fight for art. Worry less. And, and, and don't think just because Mark Ruffalo said something nice about indie movies that like your $300,000 movie is going to get a Mark Ruffalo in it now. Like that's oh. probably not going to happen. he would he should have done it before i mean whatever i also saw someone defending mark ruffalo which is which is warranted he has done a lot of indie content he supported a lot of indie filmmakers that like in ways that other filmmakers you know other other actors aren't necessarily doing but yes you always have to assume that they're the exception and not the rule right yeah yeah, I don't have any beef against Mark Ruffalo. I think it's a wonderful thing for him to say that. I just think that the reality of what that means is not what everyone is reacting to. It's not, It's that's not it, you know? It's like, oh, he'll, he'll be in an Anna Perina, you know, four to eight million dollar, you know, movie. Not your tiny little unknown movie, you know? But if anyone famous is listening, that is the way to go. Please find, trust new filmmakers, new voices, <laughs> emerging artists. Please, yes. like help curate really great content being made because financing is the real problem and we need you. We need you SAG actors and non-union actors. We need you. We love you. We need all actors. We all need, we need need all talented actors. 
But we also don't need, but would really appreciate is for you to check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash podcast. This is the way that the show continues to thrive, to live, to grow, to expand. So you can check out all what we have to offer there, which is basically our back catalog, which is at $199, $1.99 a month. You get access to three over 350 episodes of the show, which no one else can listen to unless you're a Patreon member. So check that out. Also make sure to check out Jambox.io. They're a royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Martin Scorsese and Michael Bay, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. So without any more delay, here's our chat with Melissa Rundle. Melissa, can you, this is going to be a little off, but can you give us the elevator pitch for all of Kung Fu, the TV show? Is that possible? Can you give an elevator pitch for a whole TV show? I don't even know. Okay. Okay, sure. So Kung Fu was the CW's first all Asian show. We were really, really proud of it. It ran for three seasons. We had 13 episodes a season. It followed the character of Nikki Shen, who was a first generation American Asian woman who, you know, returns from having been away from San Francisco, her hometown for three years. She hasn't had any contact with her parents. She hasn't had any contact with her friends. And she returns back one day. And because her monastery has been burned down, and it sort of set her on this mythic quest. And it's also an internal quest about her own identity and breaking free of there's a lot of pressure that are put on first generation uh, Asian Americans. You know, we hear about stereotypes of like, you know, the tiger mom and having to live up to a lot of, you know, high expectations. And so this is, it's all about her discovering what she really wants to do in her life, what her true path is. And we hope that it inspired a lot of you know, other young girls out there or just, you know, other people who hadn't seen their own experiences reflected on on screen before because representation is important. So there you go. Hopefully that covered it. Very good. <laughs> a lot. It's yeah. a lot to, to sum up, but, you know. Next question is, how was your writer's room structured? Right. So it was a very, what I consider a very traditional type of writer's room. We had 13 writers, including our showrunners. So everyone got to write and produce their own episode, which we're very grateful for. And, you know, we would have our higher ups running the room. We would start off each season. We would do about two weeks of blue sky. And what that is, is we're just idea churning, churning out ideas for like the entire season. And then we would, once we sort of were settled on our tent poles for the season, then we would go into a little bit deeper and try and architect a season that's, you know, we would divide it into episodes. We would break down each episode. The writer for for, you know, for my episode, for example, it was really like a group effort. And then, but before we went to pages, we would have to pitch, you know, our showrunners, this is what we've come up with in the room. 
and then they approve that or not. And then we go to an outline. That outline is then reviewed by production and then the studio. And then once that's all settled and we get our notes, you know, then we would go to our pages and then our first draft, you know, our showrunners see that and then studio and then network. And then we get all our notes and then, and then we're off. And then we go, we go to set and we produce our, our episode. Hopefully no one dies. And, you know, it's. <laughs> What's the duration of all that process for just one episode? Yeah. So for example, we would start in May. We like last season, we started about in May and then by December, we were finished. We were wrapped. So that is, you know, getting 13 scripts out the door and shot. And then while we were shooting episodes, you know, we would still be writing later scripts for for later episodes. So is that maybe I'm just trying to do the math, right? So it's like May to December is seven months and then right. divided by 13. So it's, it's, it's only a couple of weeks if my math might be really off yeah. per episode, right? Right. Right. So yeah, so we would be so it's like you we it's about three weeks to shoot an episode from like start to finish, including like your pre production. And then, you know, if you're writing the scripts, you have about a week to write us to write the to write the script. Mm. But but by then, but by then, but by the time you I know that sounds crazy. Oh, my God, we have to write a script in a week. But by the time you actually get to pages, you have broken and broken and broken scene by scene that episode. So like you, you're ready to go and there's no surprises. Nobody wants surprises, you know? So that's, you know, that's basically our, our kind of our timeline. And then how did you get on the show and into this room? Yeah. So my manager, Amot Sakai from Echo Lake Entertainment, he had known our showrunner, Christina Kim from before. And I had written a pilot called Tokyo Cowboy. It's a one hour pilot. It takes place post-war Japan. And so, you know, it. I think it showed that I could do world building. It was based in Asia. It had a little bit of a mythic element to it. I interviewed with them. The interview went well. They asked to read uh, another pilot of mine. I sent in another writing sample. They asked for uh, some letters of recommendation. So I had my my previous showrunner send in a, a letter of recommendation and then then it was good. We we I got on. So that was I was so grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was on Kung Fu for three all three seasons. I started off as a story editor and then when I left I, I left as a co-producer. Sorry, that's just like always so impressive to me, the like the different tiers in a writer's room. Sure, yeah. But compared to all the writer's rooms or even the like feature writing gigs that you've done, Uh can you speak to how challenging or how different or what was the characteristic that set this one apart from the other opportunities? Sure. I mean, before, before I got on to Kung Fu, I was on a Quibi show called Code 8. 
So obviously that's going to be not as layered or complex, no offense to Code or Quibi, but it's like, you know, this is, this is a one hour net uh, network show that Kung Fu was on. So, you know, Quibi, like our scripts were like eight pages. And then before that I was on a light family one hour drama called Date My Dad. It ran for one season. It was a Canadian show. I'm Canadian, but it was, it was a light family drama. So it didn't have all the complexities of like, Four different storylines and and a multitude of characters were also, it was a multi-generational show, Kung Fu. So, you know, we're coming up with stories for, you know, the the mom and dad who skew older. We're coming up with stories for, you know, we had a gay character. We had the sisters. We had a myth storyline. We had a love triangle. It was a lot more complex. And so I really appreciated that because I definitely felt it made me a better writer and improved my writing. I mean, I feel the more, the more chance, the more chances you have to work in a writer's room, the better you're going to get as a, as a writer. So I have many, many questions. I guess the first one I'm just going to go with, like, so you said you started as a story editor and then you edited as co-producer. Like how did your role change throughout each season as you're, as you got, you know, a different title or is it kind of the same just with different title, different money? Yeah. So I would say it's the same. I, you know, I feel like writer's rooms can be so like extra with their titles, but you know, (laughs) you're basically, you're in the same room and I firmly believe that good ideas can come from anyone, any position. So So like the hierarchy of a writer's room is you have your writer's assistant, then you have your staff writer, your story editor, then you have your executive story editor, then your co-producer, then your producer, then your supervising producer, then your EPs, then your showrunners. So when I, so I, when I left, I was like mid-level, which is co-producer, but at the same time, you're still in the same room together. You're all pitching on ideas. You're all, you're all working together. So it's really, it's just a title that reflects, in my opinion, pay and experience. Nice. So we went to USC Film School together. I don't think we, we hung out very much at USC Film School. So I don't know a ton about why you went and what you were after in terms of getting the graduate degree. But was your focus always in writing or did you come to writing after graduating? Tell us a little bit about your journey as sure. a storyteller. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I definitely don't want to direct. I don't think I have that personality. I don't like to tell people what to do. <laughs> it's like I just... But that's okay if you do. Like, that's fine. That's great. That's just, it's not me. (laughs) Never wanted to be in front of the camera. Much more comfortable being behind the scenes. No, I, I, I went to grad school at USC. My thesis was a screenplay because, you know, I would see other people and, you know, they're like, they wanted to direct and they would spend like thousands and thousands of dollars on their thesis film, which is fine, which is great. But for me, I was like, well, you know, I don't want to be a cinematographer. I don't want to be a director. All this is going to cost is ink and paper. You know, tuition at USC is expensive enough. I don't need to add to that. But so, so my, my thesis was, um, was a feature script, a feature comedy script called Plan B. Based on a true story, it was about three teen girls who have 72 hours to get the morning after pill. And I gave it to my one industry contact that I had. I was interning for him. He's a director, Mark Rossman. He directed a Cinderella Cinderella story in The Perfect Man. So he was sort of in that teen sphere. And I thought it was 
it, it thought it was appropriate. It took him six months to read it because he was like, you know, it's my intern giving me a script. Like, I'll read it when I read it. But then when he read it, he really, really liked it. And he attached himself to direct it. And we went out with the story. We ended up getting Neil Israel attached, who produced Finding Neverland, which won an Oscar with Johnny Depp. But when we went out at that time, it was like 2010. And the mistake that I made was that, so first of all, the climate was not ready for a script about the morning after pill. And they said, middle America is not going to understand that this is not an abortion. I said, no, it's not an abortion pill. It's a, it's preventative, <laughs> but still. So what our response was we, that we got back from everyone was we really like the writing but it's too, it's just too edgy for us right now. Do you have another sample? And I did not have another sample. So for all the future writers out there, I would say if you're going to, if you're going to go out with one script, actually have another script, like have two scripts ready because someone might say, we love your voice as a writer. We love your writing. This particular project isn't right for us, but do you have anything else? And I made the mistake. I didn't, but we went to, we went to Echo Lake's production side same thing, but they they said, well, we have a literary side and, you know, we're looking for, you know, young writers who have a, a, a distinct voice and and will rep you. So that's how I, I was able to get my, my management. So I'm very grateful for that. You know, that's actually, I, I get asked this question a lot. Like, how did you get your reps? How did you get your agent and your manager? And I had been trying for a long time, like at school, as I would, you know, enter these contests and, you know, they say, oh, we're going to get you a manager. We're going to get you an agent. I never found any luck with that. But I find you just need one person to say yes. And so I would actually say to develop relationships with producers or with people who have a little bit more clout, because if they're saying yes to you and if they want to help you, then other people will help want to help you too. So I would actually say to I mean, you can enter the the contest, but for me, it, it, it's, it only, I feel like my career really took off when I was just like, I'm just going to work on developing relationships with, with, you know, uh, other people in the industry. So does that answer your yes. question? I'm sorry, I feel like I'm going so fast and I'm just, no, you're rambling. <laughs> <laughs> There's no ramble. There's okay. no, it's all like a, a line, by the sure. way. So the ramble yeah. would not be a straight line. This is true. <laughs> So talk about like once you got your management, like what was the what happened then? Did you just immediately get hired on a job or did you have to work for many years before you actually got paid? Like what was the, yeah. the trajectory of that? So that's that's a great question. So it's funny because I uh, I feel like your if you put your heart and soul into your writing, it doesn't it honestly like the genre doesn't matter. So I wrote. So, you know, he said, why don't we need to get you in TV? He said, TV is where it's at. I know you have features, but let's get you into TV. So he said, write a write a pilot. And so I wrote a drama pilot that was very dark and edgy, like my soul. OK, <laughs> and it was called Molly. <laughs> And also based on a true story. And it was about a high school teen girl who loses everything in her silver spooned life. And she wants to get it back. She becomes an ecstasy dealer. And so I wrote that. <laughs> and my first job 
from that was two animated specials with Cartoon Network for like six to 11, 11 year olds that I did a Christmas special and I did a Halloween special and they read Molly and they said, hey, can you write this Christmas story about, you know, two obnoxious kids who need to learn a lesson? And I said, yes, <laughs> because one thing I feel that you don't want to be as a writer is a writer who is difficult to work with and who is going to pigeon themselves in a box. Because at the end of the day, I think produce credits and having someone go on to IMDb and see that you've actually done something is worth so much more than you saying, you know what? I, I can't write that fluff. I'm above that. I, I can only write, you know, these dark, dramatic teen girl cutting themselves type things. I'm not going to write Santa gets lost in the snow. Like, you know, it, whatever. <laughs> someone will, you know. So those were my two. Yeah, those were my two credits out the gate. And then from there, I started writing, you know, these rom-com features, you know, was that my passion? No. Did they pay the bills? Yes. Was it a good experience? Yes. Do I have produced credits from that? Yes. So that's another thing. It's like people would read that and they would say, read my darker writing. And they'd say, oh, can you write a puppy for Christmas? Say, yes, <laughs> because... Why not? <laughs> you know, I actually believe the rules of storytelling apply to any genre. And uh, and you never know where a relationship is going to lead. So, you know, I wrote A Puppy for Christmas for Mar Vista. Now it's on Hulu. Through that, it played on Up TV. Well, how does Up TV fit into that? That was the first TV show I ever booked, Date My Dad. It was on, it was on Up TV. So you never know where... Mm who you're going to meet execs jump around a lot of the times. And so, you know, we, I, I knew one exec over at Mar Vista who left, went to Lifetime. I ended up selling that Molly pilot to Lifetime. So that was, that was great. You never know. I say, you know, be strategic on what projects you say yes to, but if you know the project is going to be greenlit and it's kind of a guaranteed thing anyway, I would, you know, don't don't be above anything. Just do it. <laughs> I love Lars von Trier and David Lynch, but I also really love Christmas rom-coms. Sure. And <laughs> when I saw, I have not seen a puppy for Christmas yet, which I'm very ashamed, but I have seen 12 puppies for Christmas, okay. which you have I not know. written. And I think, <laughs> which I regret watching, Okay, but, but I think your film looks much better. Oh, but either way, there's comfort and joy people derive from those movies. Sure. Did if anyone listens to the podcast, they know I'm on a, a quest to find out more and more about Christmas rom-coms. Oh, this might be a very specific question, but okay. did your Canadian background help secure that deal for you with Mar Vista? I'd heard that they often hire Canadian writers for these movies. Yes, that's a great question. Actually, before besides Kung Fu and my Cartoon Network, my Cartoon Network specials, me being Canadian has actually really helped my career. Those were I gotten every writing gig because they were looking for a Canadian writer. I'd also like to think I'm somewhat talented, but I, I really think it's think, you. Yeah, if you can just be Canadian. <laughs> but at that same time, you know, so for my undergrad, I went to UBC Film School. But I still knew that all the creative decisions are still made in Los Angeles. 
And so that's why that I definitely wanted to leave and come here. Mm. And even Kung Fu, Kung Fu was shot in Vancouver, which is where I'm from. So that was also just a wild experience. Same with Date My Dad, shot in Vancouver. There's a ton of productions that are shot in Vancouver, but at the end of the day, the creative decisions are still made in Los Angeles. So wait, quick follow-up to that is do you think the Canadian thing, the the added value, you already have so much value, but the added value, is it tied to the financing that they have to fill in with Canadian crew or is there something else that I'm missing here? No, I think it's completely because of the financing. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. I wish I was Canadian. I know. I wish you were too. Also just for an escape (laughs) plan. Because you never know like what's going to happen with America and like, you know. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to know a little bit like, and I know this is a very common thing, but like on your IMDb, you had Date My Dad in 2017 and then the wedding, wedding arrangement in 2022. What was that up with that five years? Was it just writing a bunch of stuff that didn't get produced? Was it pitching on things and not getting them? Like, what what was that period like? Yeah, so there is, I think there are some other features there, but my husband and I, who also went to USC, Eric Bergman, we had a travel film production company. And I always said, before I have kids, I want to be able to travel. And so we created art and culture videos for tourism boards. And it was a great way to see the world. One of my best friends growing up, her name, her entertainment name is La Carmina. And she is the queen of the Gothic Lolita Underground. It's a very specific title. But she's written books. She's published books. She's been on TV shows. And so she would be our host. And so we would shoot her, because I don't like to be on camera, but we would shoot her and we'd go around and and we did all that. And we actually wrapped that up before COVID and the Quibi thing fell through. So that is not on my IMDb because Quibi went under. So yeah, the travel videos for toys. What is it? You said toys and boards? What is Tourism that? boards. Tourism boards. I yeah. was like, what is this? They call toys and boards. Okay. Um, tourism. <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah. So it was, it was a great way to, it was a great way to travel and just see the world. And just as a person, I wanted to do that. And it did put my film, film school skills to use. So I wasn't just writing behind a computer. And part of that was to do that before having children. I remember which we kind of revisited recently, but I remember being very, very pregnant in your living room a little bit after you had your first oh, child. That's right, yes. And yes. just, I, I was curious a little bit about, I know, and we ask, by the way, we ask people of all gender, this is this question, this is sure. not just because you're a lady on this okay. podcast, but this curious about the balance of writing and having a family and if it has been amenable to you to do both or it, to the degree that anything could be amenable with family. It's extremely challenging. Yeah. You know, I I was pregnant during Kung Fu. Oh, wow. And, you know, I would, but I told myself, I said, I am not going to let this impede my work here. And so when I was pregnant, first of all, I, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was, the baby was going to happen before I actually like told my showrunners, 
but I would, it was, it was over zoom because it was, you know, our writer's room was during like the height of COVID. And so I would cut my camera. I would have a little bucket beside, and then I would throw up and then I would click the camera back on and you would never know. And then when I had the baby, I, I, the baby wouldn't latch. So I had to breast pump. So I ended up buying one of those, those like shawls that you wear, like, you know, at a barber shop, one of those kind of things. And I would just, I would put on my shawl and I would pump so I could still be on camera and I could still participate. I was, I had the baby six weeks before the show started. Wow. Yeah. Before season two started. So it was challenging. It's very challenging. Also, you know, we had pretty good hours in the room. We had, we were there from about maybe about 10 to 4.30. And then my kid, my kid in preschool would come home at like five from five to seven. It, I call it the Bermuda Triangle, where it's dinner, bath and bedtime. And then from about seven to 1 a.m., I'd be working because I wow. wanted to. And then you, and then they're up, they're up at like, you know, five in the morning, the kids are up. So even though my room starts at 10, I'm up at five. And it's like, I felt like I would have lived a whole lifetime before like my work actually started. And then my work started. It's like that, that was my relaxing time because I'm sitting and I'm talking to adults and I'm, you know, I get to be creative and then, you know, but I really wanted to make sure that it did not affect that having kids didn't affect my work. Did it affect my work? Of course. Like personally, I am a workaholic. I'm always working. I'm always writing. I don't believe in work-life balance. I don't. So I feel like, yeah, if I didn't have kids, I would, I could have accomplished so much more. Sorry. And I I got a lot from that, but my takeaway also is that you did a 7 p.m. bedtime. How do you do a 7 p.m. bedtime? Well, they were little. I've like think I've never done a seven. Our kid is always doing eight p.m. bedtime. Do you do a seven p.m. bedtime, Ulrich? Yeah, seven to seven thirty. You guys are yeah. so smart. I should have done that. <laughs> I, we do like basically eight p.m. bedtime. He doesn't get to sleep till like eight thirty or nine. Really? Yeah. We're like r- rock and roll toddler over here. Oh, okay. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and then I really and then working from like about seven to midnight, seven to one is. I always wanted to come in prepared for the room. So you you can kind of anticipate what the room is going to, where the room is going to go the next day. So it's like, I wanted to have my pitches ready. I wanted to have just all, like I never wanted to come across like I was just logging in and doing the bare minimum. So so when you do your room, it says it's 10 o'clock. And then what time does the room Zoom end? Is it like 4.30? Okay. And then, so you would just do that and then you would do family time and then you would come back to yeah. work more. And is, but is that the expectation for most everybody that they would like do the room from 10 to 4.30 and then you just write what you need to write outside of that time? That's not for everyone. That's just what I set for myself. So a lot of other writers, I mean, they just, once they're off, they're off. And maybe they think of others' ideas and maybe they, and maybe they don't, but I really wanted to, you know, just earn my place there, you know, and I felt like I really had to go that I really wanted to go above and beyond because here's the thing. It's like, I feel there are so many other writers who would take my place in a second. So I wanted to show that I am like a good hard worker and it's like, it's beyond the show it's like 
your relationships that you're going to have with the people in the room. And, you know, you, you, I never wanted to show, oh, you know what? She's just skating by or she's just, you know, she doesn't deserve to be here. So was there a portion of that Zoom that would be people just writing on their episodes or was it always just like a back and forth, like, you know, time, then you're expected to, if you, cause you, you mentioned before that each of you wrote one full episode, you know, for the show. Yes. W- were you doing that work outside of the room? Basically the, like everybody basically. Yes. They would give you time away from the room, you know, to write your outline or, you know, let's say we're casting for a specific role and they needed, you know, a scene for like the actors to read. They'd give you time away from the room for that. And they would give you time away from the room when you were actually on pages writing. But otherwise, yeah, you have to get to show up. Be there. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about TV versus feature writing in that I know you were just talking about your flexibility creatively and genre wise, but it does seem as if you're headed towards a TV writing career at this moment. Yes. Again, not to pigeonhole you. Is that no, purposeful no. or is that for to lead a more sustainable life? And feel free to acknowledge the, yeah. the strike in that answer, but yeah, I'd love to hear I'm, what your goals are. Sure. That is purposeful. I definitely want to pursue television over features. I think I've written about four or five produced features. As far as creative power, you a television writer definitely has more. And I like being able to have more of a creative fingerprint on a project that I that that I'm attached to. With features, it's really all about the director. I mean, that's their that's their fingerprint. That's their calling call is the feature. You know, I've been on sets where it really doesn't matter if the writer is there or not. You know, you're lucky to get a chair on the set. And in television, it's it's much more. You are way more hands on, which I enjoy. I I I really enjoy going to set and being able to say you know, hey, let's try it this way. And people will actually listen to you because they have to. (laughs) But yeah, I uh, definitely enjoy it more. And it's more collaborative in in a lot of ways, which I enjoy. You know, you're working with other writers in the room. It's not so solitary. Usually, you know, you're not going to have 13 writers on a feature. If you do, God help that feature. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I personally, I and also just from a writer's perspective, what's awesome I feel about television is that it never really ends. Like the storylines, like you're always like, oh, you know, what if I wrote like this cliffhanger? And you don't, you don't have to tie everything up into a neat bow, which you actually do as a, as a feature writer. So I enjoy, I, I enjoy both. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a feature now just for practice, just for something, you know, I haven't, haven't written a feature in like years. When I came back to the feature format, I'm like, whoa, this is, I gotta, I gotta wrap this up. I have everything where everyone needs an ending. I'm like, oh, if this was TV, you could just be like, well, you know. We'll see you next week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you think, you you just think differently because you're thinking like longevity, you know? So it's like in a feature, you can kill someone. It's fine. In TV, you know, they're in a coma. Maybe they'll wake up. Maybe. <laughs> is it is another reason why you like TV just because it's it's a little bit more profitable to be in a in a writer's room or is is it I think so and just I think for my 
for the, for where I am in my life with kids, like I need more stability. I'm just at a point in my life where I, I need, I just, I crave the stability. So with television, you, you get a little bit more with, you, you, you get a little bit more stability. So nice. Well, let's talk about the strike. Okay. It's a big deal. This is huge. It's crazy. I, I guess I didn't really know anything because I thought this was going to be over a lot sooner. I thought the, 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 the networks were going to like, didn't be we like oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, but I guess that is not the case. So yeah. I want to just hear a little bit from your perspective. Like, what has this been like? What are your thoughts on it? Like, where do you see things going, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, it's been really challenging, especially, you know, I've got two kids under four. And so what we are, you know, we're required to go out there every day and pick it. Now they've lessened the requirements a bit. I think it's three days a week for three hours as opposed to every day for four hours. And you just do the best you can. I mean, I feel really strongly that we're striking for the right reasons. You know, take, for example, like residuals, you know, it's the nature of our industry to not have work for a year. I have been unemployed. There's been years where I haven't had any work. And so, but if you're on a TV show, for example, those residuals will help you during those rough times because we know in the industry, it's you're on a show, the show gets canceled. The network drops the show. You never know what's going to happen. So that's important. Also, AI. Actually, a, a BBC journalist just interviewed just interviewed me this past weekend about AI and the influence it's having over the industry. And, you know, it's uh, that's another thing is that we're striking for that it is a, that it is considered a human being has to write a script and AI cannot write original source material. They cannot rewrite. At the same time, we're not trying to hinder progress. We're just trying to prevent writers from being exploited. And in the past, you know, the AMPTP, it's like they, if they can, I feel my opinion, if, if there's a chance for exploitation, they will. And everything that we have, that the union has so far, we have fought for. So, you know, right now, I think Wednesday, the 12th is when is we'll hear what SAG does. So that'll be really interesting to see what happens. I think if they don't strike, then uh, the writer's strike will probably continue on. Like it'll probably be a lot longer. If they do strike, I could see things moving quickly because you really can't do anything without actors. So I don't know if you're willing to weigh in about the DGA and I'm I'm not a DGA director and I'm not sure. behind closed doors, but I have to say the optics of what happened with them uh, bothered me because I felt like the WGA was left out to dry a little bit. Like, I don't know if that is even an accurate assessment, but I, I'd love to hear if you have any comments on that. Sure. Is that okay to put you on the spot? Yeah, or? I mean, well, traditionally, the D, the DGA doesn't strike. Traditionally, they have always had a deal. I think they struck once way back in the past for five minutes, but then they <laughs> eventually struck a deal. <laughs> but you know, you know what? I feel if if our strike can help the DGA and other people get benefits and get, you know, access to better care, then great. That's such a beautiful way of looking at it. I'm much more resentful and petty. And I secretly or not so secretly, because I'm saying this out loud, I want SAG to strike because I want to see two unions fight together 
and to join forces and to help each other. And I would have loved for DGA to have been a part of that triumvirate of power to show the establishment that they are running things wrong. Anyway, I'm going to stop my not question and okay. <laughs> and soapbox. Just for those who don't know, what what exactly did happen with the DGA? They they went to to the the companies and was like, hey, you know, we want this, and they just gave it to them, or they gave a, they made a deal that worked, or what happened? I think they they, they definitely they won a lot, which is great. I mean, I know you know one of their one of the points that they were fighting for is to get a second edit, especially on TV, a, a second uh, director's cut. So so they were able to get that. I'm not oh. too I can't. I'm not too familiar with like the the details. I know I don't think they won anything as far as AI goes, but I'm not sure how AI really affects the DGA. So I'm not I'm not entirely I'm not entirely sure. Right. Right. And they've right, been they very, basically cashed in. Yeah. Yeah. And they've been a lot of people have been picketing from the union and I don't mean to villainize the DGA. I just want to see it all burn down and I just was disappointed that it didn't all burn down yet. Is <laughs> well, how I, feel. I mean it's interesting because Basically, if if you know AMPTP, if they met all our demands, it's only two percent of the profits that they make. So, and right now with the strike, they've lost even more than that, way more. You know, had they not just negotiated from the beginning. Right now, I believe there are no conversations. Although the WJ has been very willing to meet with them, I think. They're under this uh, impression that they can only deal with one union at a time, and that is not true. So they could come and you know talk, but they they're not. So we'll just. <laughs> can but I it's, ask? It's challenging oh. because you know I technically I've been unemployed since December. So yeah, I wanted to ask a non sequitur question that is not sure. going to do with this Drake. I okay. noticed you have two Gingrich related materials that you've written on your. On your oh name. yes, that's right. Oh my I just gosh. wanted to know what's yeah. with the Gingrich content on your resume. Well, that's so that's so funny. That that's right. I completely forgot. I have a uh, yeah. So in my early days, back when Funny or Die was sort of more of its like original platform where they were making content themselves, and so I wrote for Funny or Die for for a good while, and so I would write these these uh, little sketches. And so yes, that's right. There was a there was a political section of Funny or Die called Live free or die. And we were covering that election at the time. And, and yes, I wrote two Newt Gingrich, <laughs> Newt Gingrich sketches. One was a, a Christmas animation. And then the other one was played by uh, Horatio Sands. He was pl- from SNL. He oh, was playing fun. <laughs> Newt Gingrich. That's awesome. Newt Gingrich. Yeah. So that was fun. That was fun. Wow. I do not remember that. Now I do. <laughs> a long time ago. Well, well, I think it's time to get to our final questions here. So I'll, I'll jump in first. So what's the first film you wrote or or anything could be a TV show, special, whatever. And how do you feel about it now? I stand by it. You know, I th- the first script that I ever wrote was Plan B. And I especially now, I think, you know, with pe- with states trying to ban abortions and banning abortions, I actually think a discourse on sexual health and sexual birth control and access to birth control is very relevant 
And maybe when the strike is over, I'll take it out again. But back then, back then, people didn't understand that it wasn't an abortion. But now I think they would. They're dumb. What's the best (laughs) career or storytelling or writing advice you've ever received? I would say I think that an audience is more forgiving of an interesting character and a wonky plot than a great plot and a basic character. So I always start with character. And if you're having trouble sort of getting into the zone of your character, what I do an exercise or creative writing exercise that I do is I will write a day in the life of the character from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep. Where are they waking up? What's the room like? What's their sheets like? What are they, what, how have they decorated? And I, and I'll take it. And then somewhere along the line in that exercise, when the character starts to act on their own and make decisions on their own, that to me, that's magic. And that's like, okay, I, when that starts happening, I'm like, okay, I, I understand this character now. That's beautiful. Oh, advice. thank you. <laughs> What's the worst writing or career advice that you've ever received? I feel it would be not listening to your own creative compass and honing and being able to trust your creative compass is a skill. So you write your script, you give it to a bunch of people to read. If they're giving, if you're getting generally the same note, it's like, okay. But if someone gives you a note, I call it creative urination because everyone wants to be in, everyone wants to feel like they've participated, that they've, they've, you know, contributed to your script. Melissa, this is what I say. This is literally what I say every day. I say everyone wants to pee on your script. Right. You you say it in much better. That's like, that's fancy. (laughs) Creative your nature. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and, and sometimes they'll give you a note and it doesn't make the script better, but it doesn't make the script worse. It's just a lateral move note. And to me, those are actually the most dangerous because you start listening to those, then your script starts changing so much where you don't even know what you're writing anymore because it's so, it's come so far away. So, so I feel it's obviously you have to take notes as a writer. That is, that is 101. Don't be a writer who won't take a note. I will try, especially if they're, if it's coming from a higher up, if it's coming from your boss. You want to say that, you know, hey, at least you tried it. And if the note makes it better, great. But internally, just being able to assess this is a this is a note of urination or this note. Yeah, this this makes my compass go north. This is this is a good I feel this. A so note it's, of urination. <laughs> I love it. Do you have a goal? Like a just it could be artistic or it could be career wise, but for you as a storyteller. I feel like everyone says this. But I would, every TV writer says this, obviously, I would love one day to have my own show. And if that doesn't happen, honestly, given how tumultuous the nature of our industry is, I would just want to be hired again on a show. That's it. Because you you never know. There's so many other talented writers out there, so many other talented repped writers. And, you know, everyone wants the same thing. So, but yeah, that would be, that would be my dream. And just to continue to work with good people because there's so many other writers rooms. I've heard so many stories. I mean, every writer, every writer's room is challenging. You're dealing with a lot of different personalities and egos and, you know, it can be very vulnerable to just 
have to go out there and get on Zoom and just start pitching stuff and you don't know who you're going to offend or how your ideas are going to be taken. And, and like nine times out of 10, it's like your idea will get shot down or people will move. And then you have to, you can't let it affect you. You just have to keep building. So, so right. If I, if I could, even if I just work with good people for the rest of my life, that is, that's my goal. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice that you would give yourself? Oh, I am probably to have to to have been more prepared when I went out with my mm. my first picture script, and then to hmm, listening to my creative compass. Like, there's been times when not to get too personal, but well, I guess I have to, right? Because writing kind is of writing, what is, our so writing about. is personal. Yeah, you know, I I had sold my pilot to Lifetime. And this is back when Lifetime did narrative. They had Unreal and they were going to do, this was going to be their next show. It fell through like it always does. And at that time, I had just lost my grandmother. And when I was doing notes for them, I was in the hospital with my grandma. So when I lost both my show and and my grandmother, it was like, it felt like two deaths, really. And so I didn't write for an entire year. I couldn't write. And then finally, when I thought, okay, I'm I'm ready to write again. I want to write Tokyo Cowboy. It's, you know, the story of my grandparents. And before that, I went to a bunch of executives at AMC and HBO Max. And this is, you know, before like Pachinko, before Tokyo Vice, before any of that. And they said, oh, you know, we're looking for kind of like an Asian gangster show that has an organic Caucasian lead in it and everything like that. I said, great. I went to my reps. I said, I'm going like, this is what I want to write. And they, they advised me. I don't want, you know what, actually, can I backtrack? I don't want to say my reps. I was advised. I was advised. I, I I went to people to seek advice and they said, it's a period piece. It has subtitles. This is not, you, you cannot write this. Write a cop drama instead. So I did. I wrote a cop drama, but the story kept nagging at me. And, and a year later, I'm like, I have to write this. I wrote it. I go back to all the executives. They have all of the, their other, you know, Asian shows all up and running. They don't need this, but it was a calling card for Kung Fu and I was able to get on it, but it could have been so much more. So, mm. so I, so that is, that is two big regrets that I have in my career. One, not being prepared. You know, I was fresh out the gate. I didn't know to have an, another feature. My first feature that I'd written, I didn't have it. And then also not listening to my heart and trying trying to write for them whoever they are everyone's like they're looking for this they're looking for that and it's just it's all bullshit just write write the stories that keep you up at night that you have to just get out of your soul and expel because that's what's going to that's what's going to shape your voice as a writer and that's what everyone is looking for it doesn't matter the genre it doesn't matter if there's if it's a if it's a foreign story and you know if your voice is coming through that's what that's what they're going to pay you for it's really good awesome. advice thank you for sharing okay. <laughs> our, our last question sure is is making movies and tv hard yeah is it hard yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's yeah, it's extremely difficult. It is it is so challenging. And I always say if you are writing to make money, there are easier ways 
to make money. You know, it's <laughs> it's so masochistic to be a writer, honestly, because you put your heart and soul at a filmmaker, you put your heart and soul into it. And then nine times out of 10, you're going to get rejected. People are going to, you know, you. so just I do it because life is short and there's nothing else I would rather be doing. And at that same time, that's why I know I will never retire. I will never retire because there's always going to be stories that I want to write. Like I will die at my keyboard. <laughs> so <laughs> so in, the, in closing, tell us where you want people to support you. How can people best support you? Oh, I think for now, if you want to get your steps in, come on down and walk around in a circle with us, grab a sign. I think that would be the the, the best type of support. And uh, for all your listeners too, I'm more than willing to, uh, to answer any questions or if anyone wants to reach out and, you know, I'm happy to read scripts. I'm happy to just to help Ooh. anyone. Ooh. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna get, you're gonna get scripts. <laughs> but I, but I, I do think that, you know, there needs to be more just people uplifting other people in the industry, like regardless of your gender or your race. Just you know, if you can lend a hand down and pull someone up, because you never know what what beauty you could you could be giving the world by by helping some other person. So. Help other people. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's so wonderful. What a great message to get out there. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Melissa? I, of course, remember her talking about creative urination, which made me so (laughs) happy that she and I dispense the same advice or the same kind of perspective that people just really want to pee on your work. And then you have to kind of like excuse this phrasing, but you have to bake that into the process, right? You have to bake in like all of their pee, like constantly um, bake in the pee pee in the timeline. (laughs) I also remember, well, this is this is not a memory, but the reason we reached out to Melissa, the reason she was top of mind, I don't mean to go dark, but I was at a memorial with her and she went up and mm. improvised a speech to a mutual friend about a mutual friend of ours. And she was so charming and vulnerable and sweet that it made me think about her and her work and her career. And then you were like, hey, is there anyone you would like to ask on and I was like wow I'd really like to talk to Melissa Rundle so it's just you never know like writers their material shines in like the most bizarre places right you could tell Justin Memorial the way she improvised her speech that she's a creative what do you remember about Melissa I remember that thing I wrote in the intro about how she had these multiple times where she had darker subject matter as her sample. And then she kept on getting hired to do like Christmas movies or rom-coms or whatever. And based off her IMDb, like you would figure that that's like her thing, that she loves to write rom-coms and Christmas movies and lighthearted stuff, you know. But apparently that's not her at all. And it's just like what she got offered to do for money. And she did a good job at it. And and I just think like that whole thing is really fascinating to me. 
And that just shows that good writers can do what they are paid for and they can write great content, you know, and you shan't judge writers based off of their credits. Like, don't look at somebody who has just made romantic comedies or, or that's what's been produced on their IMDb. Like they, they could probably do lots of other things too, lots of other genres that you might not think of, you know, and then actually maybe think of Craig Mazin, you know, because he had done like hangovers two and three and he did like a bunch of spoof movies and like he had all these comedies on his resume and then he comes out with Chernobyl which is like 100% different than anything he's ever like done in the past before and it was so fucking good like that show is incredible I don't know if you watched it I but can't it was watch like, it I can't it's oh too, really I can't oh, watch man. things like that I want to be able to oh. I can watch really really gross horrific horror films but I can't watch anything about Chernobyl really it was really dark it was really sad and oh. it was really heavy but it was such a well done show and like I don't usually watch dark like sad content either yeah. to the for degrees because I'd rather watch something fun and exciting and whatnot you know but it was really good and I feel like like someday you should overcome that and give it a shot because it's really well done. When my kids are grown, I will watch all the things about like all the chemicals we are exposed to and how it informs our genetics. Like I'm just not, I can't. Yeah. Young kids. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. I can't watch anything about like young kids being kidnapped or any way being abused or anything. It's like, no thanks. Pass. Mm. Kidnapping, murder of a young person. Pass. No thanks. You know, <laughs> well, and I realize that my connection doesn't make any sense, but like my image of Chernobyl is that like empty playground that that image. Oh yeah. So like that's it's I know I'm like drawing pretty extreme inferences, but that's why I can't watch it is because I think about that empty playground. Well, Can you not watch Terminator Two also because of the playground melting scene? <laughs> Probably not. I haven't seen that since before I had kids. There's a lot of things I can't watch anymore. But I can watch Possession. I can totally watch Mm. Possession. And like, you know, anything Joe Bob shows. Uh, But I think it's time for me to ask you the question for you're the expert. You're the expert. What's your the expert? It is a hand-spun homemade segment from our producer, Eric Toms, where Eric Toms says, hey, Ulrich and Liz, I, I guess you're experts. Let me ask you a question that an expert <laughs> could answer. And this week's question is, feeding my cast and crew is very expensive. Have you ever had food donated to a production? So Ulrich, what is your expertise advice about food donation? So I didn't even know this was a thing, but this is totally a thing. Like people will totally do this. Like it's crazy. I uh, worked on a short many, many years ago where they got some food donated by just, and like, I can't remember like how this worked. Like if it was like this producer who was like a Columbia grad was like, yeah, ask if they'll do it for free. And I was like, nah. And he was like, yeah, ask. And I was like, okay. And I did it and it worked. I was like, whoa, we got free burritos. (laughs) Oh shit. (laughs) Okay. Or if it was something where like he had done it on a previous project and like told me that I should just try. I can't remember how it worked out, but like, yeah, I got definitely got huge discounts and I think I got some free food on this indie short movie. So like now I always ask, I'm always trying to get the deal because like sometimes people will do it. Sometimes they'll, they'll be able to like, they'll, they'll have the bandwidth where they can give you a, either a massive discount, like a 50% off kind of thing, or they can, you know, provide a meal, you know, like even just one meal on your show for free. Or if you buy, like, I think what I did once I bought like three and then they gave us one free, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. But like, 
Yeah, it was really cool. And like, so now I just call, I ask for the manager. I try to talk, I just talk it out. I, I say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we need. We can commit to this many days. And then they'll like be like, okay, yeah, for that, we can give you this, this price, you know? And if it's like, you know, just a big amount of food, like you'll, you can generally get like some really great deals. So I don't know if you're always going to get it for free. Like, I wouldn't say like, that's like a normal, like I haven't, like, that's definitely not worked for sure. Like, but like, I think you can almost always get a discount for sure. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Liz? Have you had oh. success with this? I don't have much more to add other than you. I mean, when I was at USC, I wanted to shout out Vistango. Vistango was a restaurant that gave us free Italian food and was delicious. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Donations happen. Discounts happen. I would say in more times often than not, you can just ask and negotiate with anything and people are willing to kind of meet you to a degree. I feel, but my only firsthand experience with Vistango, but I know it happens all the time. So indie producers, indie filmmakers, you know, take, have restaurants take pity on us. We deserve their pity and food. And I, and I would also say like, you can kind of tell right away if they're going to be interested in helping you or not. So like, don't waste time. Like, having multiple conversations with a person if they're like not giving you the signs of like being interested to help because you know like you don't have a lot of time as a producer or whoever doing is doing this role and so i'd just say you know try to be quick about it and like you know find the people who really want to help you and like what we did i did this movie in tahoe i think we had four or five restaurants and we just would rotate across like 12 days and so, like, we would just go to each one, like, a certain amount of times, and we'd have deals set up at each of them, and, you know, it was great. It was really fun, and it was, it, I think the budget was relatively cheap for us to, to make that happen. So, anyways, well good, good question, Eric, and people, tell us what you, tell us if this works for you. I'd love to hear more stories. Yeah, email us at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com, or you can always send us a question there, a comment there, a suggestion there, or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Melissa Rundle for coming on the show. Thanks to editor Jeff Rymoot for doing all the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for doing all the social media stuff. Thanks to our producer Eric Toms for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to you next week. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle. Of, that was terrible. I can't believe like welcome. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.